Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Priceless Moments Edition. It's Wednesday, October 18th, 2017. On today's show, the Myrowitz stories, new and selected, is the new film from indie film director Noah Baumbach. It's a well-observed angsty comedy starring uh, Dustin Hoffman as an aging sculptor and Ben Stiller, Elizabeth Marvel, and Adam Sandler as his fucked-up kids. And then American Vandal is the true crime parody we didn't know we were waiting for. Now that it's here, it seems inevitable. It's on Netflix, and it's uh, very juvenile and very funny. Can't wait to discuss it. And finally, we discuss a New York Times Magazine article about anxiety and why it may have displaced depression as the prevailing mental health diagnosis of our era. Joining me today is uh, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Julia, welcome back to the show. Hi, Steve. Um, when you exit the building, you leave some big shoes behind you, but I think we did a pretty good job. We stuffed a lot of uh, surrogates in, inside them, and they, they seem to fit okay. Love that, Isaac Butler. Great show last week. Yeah, he's terrific. He really is terrific. Um, uh, and, of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steven. All right, well, digging right in, Noah Baumbach is the indie film director known for Kicking and Screaming, Squid and the Whale, Francis Ha, many, many films. His new one is called The Myrowitz Stories, New and Selected. It stars Dustin Hoffman as an aging patriarch, a self-serious artiste, a sculptor who never really made it, and more, more critically, never really came to terms with never really having made it. And he takes his disappointments out uh, with epic passive aggression on his adult children from different marriages, from various marriages, played by Ben Stiller, Elizabeth Marvel, and yes, Adam Sandler, uh, notable about the film, if nothing else. And I think there are many notable things about the movie is it features a, a very convincing, uh, dramatic performance from Mr. Sam Sandler. Why don't we listen to a clip? The work looks stunning altogether like this. Danny, you made this? Gene and I did, yes. Harold Marovitz. A retrospective. You send in the pictures and they make it for you. Oh, Dad, Gene and I spoke to a woman at the museum at Bard. Is that Hilma Fetterman? Hilma, yes. And there's some interest in doing a show there. Oh, well, that's the least they can do for you after all those years you've given them. I think with Eliza going this fall and your history as a teacher, we have a good shot. Danny, make sure Hilma sees the book. A retrospective at this point would be a real feather in my cap and I think bring attention to the new work. The, the thing is that it would be part of a group show. Bard faculty. A group show, no. That's essentially an insult. I think Hilma's angry because I voted against her chairmanship. 
Tell Helma no. Well, Helma hasn't offered it yet. When she does, tell her no. So what you hear there is Dustin Hoffman's character, Harold Meyerowitz, talking about the possibility of putting together a show of his work with two of his children and his wife, his fourth wife, who's played by Emma Thompson. Uh, Dana, I think that that was a that was a great clip for conveying just how old, wounded, and finally potentially monstrous uh, the Dustin Hoffman patriarch is. This movie is painfully well observed and um, and painful in a way. What do you what do you make of it? I really liked this movie much more than I thought I would like it. I, I feel like to give some bound background on my bound back experiences that his movies for me have had diminishing returns since I would say The Squid and the Whale. He's made a lot of movies that I admire without enjoying. And one of his specialties is having these great he, he, he loves a big family unit of, you know, extremely flawed grating people talking over each other, which is what this movie is as well. But in some cases, Margot at the Wedding is the movie that pops to mind in this respect all of those people are so grating and so unlikable that you just want to leave the room where they're talking. And that was not the case at all for me with this movie. In addition to it being, as you say, often cringy and painful and well-observed in its dysfunctional family relationships, it's really funny. I mean, it's, there are tons of laugh-out-loud funny moments that are, I think, really well-synced and do not contrast with or take away from the, the pathos of what happens in the family. Uh, it's not a perfect movie by any means. I think at times it's a little bit cute. It has these uh, separated chapters that are sometimes separated with little title cards that seemed completely unnecessary. There's some sort of artifice like that that doesn't really need to be there. Mm. But but I feel like when it's when it's go when it kind of gets to be slinging the hash, this movie is really funny and lively uh-huh. and great. And the performances across the board, all wonderful. Yeah, drop pin on on the chapter titles because I'm going to disagree with you about it. But first, I want to hear, Julia, what do you think of this movie? I also liked this movie quite a bit. We talked about While We're Young a couple years ago, I think, whenever it came out. And I think felt that it was finally observed in some ways, but maybe a little bit airless uh, and not particularly enjoyable. And I was trying to think through why this movie feels so much sharper or more interesting. And I think I think there are two qualities that made me really like it. The first is that, and I risk here making the movie sound more treacly than it is, but the characters have real arcs, or at least the two, the sons, who are the two we spend the most time with. So um, the kind of house husband, would-be musician, turned doting dad, played by Adam Sandler, and the high-powered uh, money manager, played by Ben Stiller, both really shift in their relationship with their father over the course of the film in ways that seem to bode well for their humanity going forth in whatever time exists to them beyond the close of the movie. And then the uh, the film also has a character played by Grace Van Patten, um, Adam Sandler's daughter, who's just headed off to college, who also seems like a... a beacon of the idea that someone could emerge from this family history and like build a happy, satisfied life for herself and kind of recognize the good that has come from her background without getting gnarled in the bad. So it's just hopeful and happy in a way that some of Noah Baumbach's other movies don't, they don't close on that note, uh, as I recall. And then the second thing, I think it's a really good performance from Adam Sandler. And obviously he's gotten plaudits before for dramatic performances in Punch Drunk Love and you know, what's the other... There's Funny a, People, the Judd Apatow movie, which, though it's a very flawed movie, I loved his performance in. His performance, I think, seemed more naturalistic than some of those other performances where 
if you like squint wrong in the middle of the scene, suddenly you see the comic like being an actor. I just really bought his performance in a way that warmed up the whole movie and its bitter observations about how we ruin each other. Yeah, it's a very subdued performance, which Mm. is not something you expect of Adam Sandler. And it's got a lot of music in it because his character's a musician. And when I think of Adam Sandler that I love the most, it's Opera Man. (laughs) Opera Man from the old Saturday Night Live days. And there's a little touch of Opera Man in these moments when he sits at a keyboard and plays usually some sort of song that is obviously a family heirloom song, like a goofy song that was composed in in their childhood. There's a wonderful song that he sings with his daughter, with Grace Van Patten's character, that's just a really touching sweet moment early in the movie that, like you say, it doesn't partake of this sort of sour, airless feeling that a, a Baumbach dysfunctional family comedy can sometimes have. Um, so I, I I really liked the movie and and um, bordered on loving it at times. Um, he, he, a couple different things. One is that this is obviously a portrait of an entire family poisoned by a father's disappointed vanity. And this seems to be a specialty of Noah Baumbach. I mean, the father, played by Jeff Daniels in Squid and the Whale, uh, you know the, the 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 you know patriarch with uh, artistic pretensions, who's a failure, but is also hyper uh, verbal, literate, uh, is brilliant at observing the world precisely when it wounds his ego, and capable of you know canyons of, bl- of blindness, right? Like just huge, whopping blind spots when uh, his ego is in danger. You know, this character type is something Baumbach has a, has a genius for. Um, and I could have watched Dustin Hoffman as this character almost interminably. I mean, he, he Baumbach ventriloquizing through Hoffman, who's terrific as this wounded, sad, and, and really, as I said, kind of finely monstrous figure, is is brilliant. And Baumbach is, is brilliant at... At, at showing us his powers of, of egomaniacal avoidance uh, and the cost of it across generations. And as you say, Julia, I mean, the movie's really defined by how it, it doesn't reproduce itself in the third generation, which is why the movie's hopeful and um, completely saved from um, bile. Uh, and also, I think that for me, the other reason the movie's a success is that it has a question at the heart of it, which is totally compelling, which is what do you do with a person especially a parent figure who has bent you out of shape for an entire lifetime. And that bending out of shape is so formative that it is the shape of your own character, right? It's constitutive of who you are. And at moments, you're capable of separating yourself from it and seeing it in all its horror. But that's dark and profoundly disturbing. And at moments, you just have to live it as your own character. And and that really is what this film to me is about. Um, and I think Sandler is terrific in it. And and because the way it's played out and the way it plays out in each son is actually very carefully done. Sandler is a very gifted musician who has done absolutely nothing to bring his talents to market. So he's a total failure. He's been a total failure professionally, though he's been, we, we come to understand he's been a good if complicated father to his own daughter, which is the source of the hope in the movie. But he's been essentially a house husband for 17 years. He's now divorcing the woman who supported him financially. And he's filled with a ton of regret and rage. And then you've got, uh, and I think this is quite brilliant. And then you've got Ben Stiller, who's gone into the financial world as a, as a kind of wealth advisor, a wealth manager um, for rich clients and is making a very, very, very good living. And 
the father's need to crush Adam Sandler by saying, I don't understand. You had this wonderful talent and you did nothing with it. And then turn around at the same time and crush the other kid by essentially saying, I'm so proud you made money. When what he's really saying is money, that's money is sullied. It's unimportant. I don't understand it at all. But, but good job kind of patting him on the back while actually tamping him down. And and I thought all of that is portrayed so beautifully. I want to say, say one other thing, even if the kind of bile of the film maybe wasn't exactly to your palate, the, the very last shots of the movie are, are, are perfect, right? Like it's just so hard to end a film like this right. And it, it is literally ended on a note of perfection in my estimation. Steve, you said you wanted to get back to the to the title cards and whether or not they were too cute. And to me, that's a bigger question than just the title cards. It's um, th- is that there are moments when a kind of mannered style enters into this movie that I don't think needs to be there and that the movie's at its strongest, for example, in the first half hour when it's very naturalistic. It feels written at the same time. It feels like a very written movie. It was Bambach who wrote the script by himself. But it's a great kind of writtenness, you know, where there's sort of comic overlapping dialogue and scenes that are accomplishing specific rhetorical goals, like a moment when the two brothers are in an elevator together speaking and each of them is completely unable to hear the other. They're essentially having a sort of boast off in which none of the boasts land because they're not listening to each other. Anyway, it's full of great little rhetorical moments like that. But I I think that there's a, a kind of uh, J.D. Salinger-esque kind of cuteness that intrudes at moments that interrupts the flow. All right. Well, here's my defense of the title cards, which I thought worked. And I generally, I hate that. Uh, I, I find them twee when Wes Anderson does it and various other people do it. But in this instance, the reason why I thought it worked is there's this very clean kind of literary beginning to each one of the, I don't know what you would call them, sections or vignettes of the film. And and most of them are, they commonly end with the family finally descending into rage where all of the rage just pops to the surface and someone is mid scream and he just cuts it. And I think what he's doing there is saying, like, like, okay, when you start to tell a narrative, you pick an arbitrary beginning and you do something kind of surgical and clean and you get into it, you know, be a kind of convention, literary convention. But the truth is, and that's totally self-conscious artifice, right? And there's no missing it in, this, in the context of a movie especially. But he wanted to show you how real life just is deeper, uglier, messier, and this is where this family always ends up. And so he does this abrupt cut at the end of the scene to say, look at how the literary, the neatness of the literary pretensions and the artifice of them have been exploded by how much fucking volcanic rage there is in this family. And I thought that the two worked together, um, but only because they work together. Well, the offbeat editing, I agree with you. There are a lot of scenes that end just a beat earlier than you would think they would, for example, mid-scream. And yeah, those are hilarious and set you, the the viewer slightly off balance and also sort of give you the impression that this is constantly going on in an ambient way. It doesn't matter whether you hear the end of that particular yell of Adam Sandler because somebody else will be yelling in the very near future. I kind of think it works. I basically, basically what I'm saying here is I'm persuaded by Steve's argument, I think. One thing I will say. <laughs> oh, oh my God, bronze it. <laughs> one thing, bronze it. Put it in the Whitney. Um, one thing I will <laughs> say is that I do think the sisters' arc, played by Elizabeth Marvel, Jean's arc, um, she doesn't get the same focus in grappling with her 
dad. And Not then, at all. She gets a story set off by an overly cute title card, Jean's story. And the whole rest of the story is really the men's story, the father and the two sons. I think I would, if the, if it were not for the uh, Grace Van Patten daughter character and the notion that she's part of this lineage of uh, artists with feelings, I think I would have a bigger gender problem with this movie yeah, than I do. Yeah, it's definitely the case that yeah. the women are not as well-written as the men. But given that Bombach has written so many movies centered around women, I'm not going to, you know, slap a misogynist card on him or anything. But yeah, this is a movie that is much more interested in the male characters than the female. All right. Well, the movie is called The Myroid Stories, New and Selected. We all really liked it. It is in theatrical release, but it's also streaming on Netflix. Uh, through, th- you know, three pretty emphatic check-it-outs. All right, moving on. All right. Well, uh, before we go any further, Julia Turner, usually we have some business and we insert it here. So um, what do you got? What do you have? Slate is putting on a very cool event in New York City on November 8th. That date may be etched in some of your minds because it is the date of the election 2016. Uh, And as we were contemplating the anniversary, it occurred to us that perhaps people would like to not be alone that day. Maybe they might like to be with other people who want to think about the results of the election and the year that has transpired since then. So our event is called The People vs. Trump Year One, and it features Jamel Bowie, Isaac Chotner, Dahlia Lithwick, uh, Michelle Goldberg, and more interviewing those at the forefront of politics, media, the law, and activism as they compare notes on the lessons, challenges, and victories they've seen over the past year and what they expect from the next. It'll be at 7.30 p.m. on November 8th at the New School Auditorium in New York. I'll be there introducing the event, and I hope that you will, too. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and information. I also want to tell you all about Pinna, which is Panoply's new audio app just for kids ages 4 through 12. Pinna features Peabody-winning original series, interactive game shows, irresistible audiobooks, popular podcasts, gripping adventures, enchanting bedtime stories, lively science and history shows, and much more. Subscribe to enjoy thousands of minutes of award-winning, critically acclaimed shows. Pinna frees kids from the small world of the screen and lets their imaginations take over. Pinna's programs are designed to spark the imagination and feed the mind without the guilt of endless screen time. So check out Pinna on the iOS App Store or search for the Pinna feed wherever you get your podcasts. And then in Slate Plus today, we were inspired by the new Star Wars trailer and frankly, even more by the new Black Panther trailer to talk about movie trailers, Uh, whether we like them, whether we still watch them uh, and why they are such cultural events sometimes. Find out in Slate Plus. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program where fans of Slate and our podcasts help support us. If you enjoy this podcast and find it valuable, joining Slate Plus is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing these shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest and the work Slate does, go to slate.com slash cultureplus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Steve, what's next? Class donor doofus all-around clown Dylan Maxwell stands accused of spray-painting graffiti penises on 27 cars in the school lot. The school's news team is on it. What results is a mockumentary, a parody of the trumped-up somber self-seriousness of the true crime show's uh, for which audiences apparently have an insatiable appetite, as I said in my intro intro, American Vandals, a true crime parody we didn't know we were waiting for. But of course we were in an age of making a murderer and serial and now Dirty John. Uh, the time the time was ripe. Uh, why don't we why don't we listen to a clip? 
So in this clip, you're going to hear Dylan Matthews, the uh, stoner clown hero that Stephen just described, talking to Peter Maldonado, who's sort of the, uh, the the head reporter on the school news team investigating the story. And they are examining, <laughs> they're comparing the dicks spray painted on the 27 cars in the faculty parking lot, which is the big scandal being investigated, to <laughs> the dicks that Dylan Maxwell is well known for constantly drawing on whiteboards all around the school. The hairs, the tip, the ball size, they're different. None of this was mentioned at Dylan's hearing. What else did the school board miss? All right, take a look at this. These are the dicks that you drew in Shapiro's class. Yeah. Right? Of course. And then this is the dicks that were drawn in the car. Oh, Yeah. Shit. They're completely totally different. different. Yeah. Wow. And we checked. Every single whiteboard dick that you drew in Shapiro's class all had hairs. Yeah, I never forget the ball hairs. It's just, I mean, it's such an important part of the dick. And like the mushroom head's all off. Mine's way different. I usually just do like a, you know? And the mushroom tip. They really, that's like a heart almost. And they didn't even bring it up in your case. This is dope. This is really dope, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I kind of like. Is there any I mean, need for the segment well. to go on? I mean, who wouldn't watch that show? <laughs> yeah, just stop listening to us and go watch American Vandal. It's so good. It's so good. I mean, I, I, I thought I had coined an original uh, term when watching this faux brow. I love fake lowbrow when it's done right. And you know, it, it, anyway, I'm gonna let you talk, Julia. I mean, this thing's fucking funny. What else is there to say? But to, to talk to me, bail me out here. So, a this is hilarious. This thing has so many excellent qualities. First of all, it's hilarious. It's just consistently really funny, both because it's about dicks. It's about like drawings <laughs> of dicks and it just never gets old. There were a couple of reviews that were like, there really are a lot of dick jokes in this mockumentary. And it's like, yeah, that is the point. Get with it. Well, uh, when I saw it was eight half hour segments long, I thought, all right, how long can they spin the joke out? But the fact is, I just finished segment five and I can't wait to get home and watch the last three. I watched the whole <laughs> thing in like one afternoon. It was great. But the conceit of the original crime and the many, many different ways that they come at it, that clip we listened to about the kind of forensics of uh, graffiti dick shape is just the... <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm not going to call it the tip of the iceberg. Anyway. I... <laughs> no. <laughs> um, second, more to the point, as a media parody, it gets everything right about the modern style of like, was this innocent person wronged, true crime, docu docuseries, whether it's serial, making a murderer, anything else. Um, and the just consistency of the gag from the opening credits that I think say the show is like executive produced by Mr. Baxter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In addition to the actual creators, Tony Yacenda and Dan Perrault, there are all these fictional creators sort of, that are sort of layered in that are characters within the show. So in addition to these teenagers, you get quite a broad sense of who the faculty is and the parents of the different kids, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, yeah no, this thing is this thing is incredibly funny. And the joke can just go on and on and on. Like I just I'm, I never anticipate wearying of it um and i think one of the reason it, it works is that of course we all love a good dick joke but there is some inherent limited um appeal to them but but the reason why this works over and over and over again is that is that you know the, the thing the thing to satirize about 
about this new genre of true crime in the age of podcasting and streaming is the utter self-seriousness with which you have to take the underlying material and no matter how exculpatory or inculpatory, depending on which point you're trying to make, it it might be. I mean, you just have to you have to shove it, the facts into this narrative form because the narrative form is so popular. So it just gets that tension exactly right between the self serious seriousness necessary to carry off the genre and the utterly lowbrow <laughs> humor of 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 like endless dick jokes and and. All the performers are terrific. Like everyone is doing exactly what it takes to make this thing funny on a second by second basis. And I can't wait to finish watching it. Well, and a huge part of the jokes come from the form as well. I mean, just the the choices to, for example, have these kind of computer recreations. Like there's like CGI animations of various things that are happening. And just to give you an idea, one of the things that we witness from multiple angles and recreation is a girl giving a hand job to a teenager on a dock at camp. (laughs) You remember those parts? With various sight lines and kind of suppositions of how who might have seen it and whether it happened or not. And then when they conclude that she can't have given the hand job, the the figure of the hand job administering girl disappears. They're kind of in these like red kind of like claymation figurines, and then there's just a little figurine alone on the dock with an erection. <laughs> But wait, I you I, I I was laying out my like five reasons why this thing is extraordinary and you guys cut me off in mid in the middle of two, which is fine. But so <laughs> let me just say my other two. So um so two was like the pit perfectness, like the, down to those recreations and then sort of the you know, we got to turn over every stone. There's an episode there are episodes where they kind of go through all of the different suspects. Um the third thing that's really remarkable about it is that it works as a mystery like and part of the power of it and part of the appeal of it is that the and part of what maintains makes them able to maintain the deadpanness of the joke for eight half hours is that there's a satisfying mystery at the heart of it like the durability the strength of the whodunit form (laughs) is so intense that you're just like following along like it's agatha christie and you're like who did draw the dicks like is he innocent or not and you're like actually like there are cliffhangers you can't wait to watch the next one you kind of want to know if it's that person who seems shady or that person who seems shady like you are legitimately following the mystery and that's part of the joke it makes you realize just that the form is addictive no matter what it's about. So that's part of the commentary. And then the final thing, which I think I'm the only one here who's seen all the way through to the end, is that the series ends up being not just a joke, actually. Like, it really is kind of a lovely meditation on high school and who you get to be and how you come to be who you are and how characters are shaped in the cauldron of high school. Like, it actually has more to say... Uh, at the end about the world and people and the performances that animate it are sincere enough underneath the goofiness that uh, it actually finds its own register at the end. Uh, and it just, it's satisfying and great, and you, you got to watch it. Oh, I'm so glad the end is satisfying. I was a little bit afraid that it would fall into the trap of, you know, the ambiguous ending that leaves you deliberately frustrated, and you never know who drew the dicks, and I need to know who did it. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the benefits of a mockumentary of a fake scandal is that you can come up with a more satisfying ending than, uh, you know, some of these these other real-time scandals. But eventually they start to release episodes of the documentary on YouTube. And so they they also deal with that kind of real-time 
evidence gathering of the crowds online that you uh, experienced with Serial and some of these other shows. Um, so they really explore a lot of the dynamics. I would just want to add that the timing of it is so perfect. I was just so relieved to be watching something that was just silly and funny and, as you say, Steve, juvenile. I just feel like we've all been so overwhelmed with grim, slogging, horrible news that we have to process. And then we have to watch 18-hour documentaries about Vietnam and we all have to feel horrible all the time. And it was just awesome to just sit for it's going to be four hours total and just snort laugh at utterly ridiculous high school Yeah, well, it's a nice combination of juvenile but wise and humane so it's not juvenilia that makes you feel it's not mean-spirited at all it's not mean-spirited and it's innocent and you feel as though not in a stupid way but you feel as though you you feel as though these people are not growing up in a menacing and deeply broken culture and you feel like it's sort of true to what high school experience is and so it's it's in addition to being super funny it's it's a balm. Look, I think we can all agree it's the feel-good dick mockumentary of the year. <laughs> if you watch only go. one four-hour-long documentary about dick spray-painted on cars, make it this one, American Vandal. You know what? Given what I've watched so far, is no surprise that it ends on the totally uh, human note. Um, they're they're just they're getting everything right, including the believability of these characters. It is very funny. It's streaming on Netflix. I mean, you just got to go check it out and come talk to us about it at facebook.com slash culturefest. And I'll leave it there. Teenage anxiety. Why are more American teenagers than ever suffering from anxiety? It was a New York Times Magazine article this past weekend with some, uh, I think, potentially quite alarming statistics. Anxiety, so says the article, is the most common mental health disorder in the United States, affecting nearly one-third of both adolescents and adults. And it goes on to say that there's been a somewhat precipitous increase in reported cases of anxiety among young people, specifically undergraduates, from 50% reporting in 2011, 62% in 2016. And from uh, Dana, from the anecdotal evidence of the article, this is this is quite a, an acute and serious problem. And the article does a very good job of painting a series of, of portraits of kids suffering from this at the same time it's trying to get at the causal mechanism here. Uh, I think when we were growing up and, and for most of our adult lives, maybe the, the defining mental illness uh, of the era was depression and its relationship to um, pharmaceuticals like Prozac. And that did seem to shift a few years ago. What would you make of this article? I mean, I, I guess I was very disappointed in this article. It seemed to, as the stats that you just cited, sound like they would be the lead to a really fascinating and important investigation of various things, like why is it the case that anxiety has replaced depression as our prevailing mental illness? Uh, what's the difference between anxiety and depression? What are the medication strategies? What in our culture at the moment might be making anxiety either be on the rise or or be noticed more? And none of those questions seem to be adequately addressed by the article, which was mainly a pretty anecdotal exploration of two or three different teenagers' stories. It also made big promises, this article, that it was going to be about the entire population's relationship to anxiety. And in fact, it mainly talked about teenagers and about these very specific teenagers. Yeah, articles like this give me hives. Like, it is so difficult to write persuasively and accurately about uh, changes in patterns of mental health diagnoses because profession of psychiatry and the profession that kind of governs how we think about and treat mental health is constantly reevaluating the kind of different diagnoses and 
how to think about them, how to classify them, how to treat them. New medications are constantly becoming available. Those can become prevailing treatment methods. You know, there's there's a, th- this article does not really seriously grapple with the structures that help dictate the way we diagnose and think about mental health and those structures can so affect what the statistics are. The article also doesn't really seriously grapple with the statistical data and explain why we should be persuaded that anxiety is so much more prevalent now than it was in the past. It sort of waves its hand at the set of data that suggests that the increase in incidence of anxiety among teenagers it correlates with the increase in adoption of smartphones, which you know, there is interesting data there. There was the Gene Twenga article in The Atlantic, which I think was much discussed. Um, but I just, I, I get really itchy when people write about mental health trends without being serious about all of the issues around how we track mental health trends. And I'm not saying, I'm not meaning to suggest at all that the trend isn't real or might not be real you know, or or to dis- be dismissive of the work of psychiatry and how they think about these different conditions and and how the knowledge evolves. But it's just the the way <laughs> because the challenge with mental health is that you have a set of feelings and experiences, and then you put a name to it, and that name is so shaped by the people you talk to and what the treatment options are. Like tracking mental health trends is just not the same as like tracking incidences of breast cancer or something where there is like a a diagnostic of that kind. And so trend articles about mental health that don't deal with that seriously freak me out. On the other hand, I think there was a kernel in this article of a narrower article that I would have been interested in arguing that cognitive behavioral therapy is a more effective treatment for anxiety than medication and that that's something that should be seriously considered by anybody who does have an anxious person in their lives, which is lots of us because anxiety is a common life thing. And the best parts of the article, I think, are the on-site kind of explorations of a cognitive behavioral therapist going out onto mm-hmm. a college campus with a bunch of teenagers and making them do all these goofy things. Like if you've got social anxiety, go talk to a stranger on a bench, you know, hold up a sign that says, I have anxiety and see who talks to you. He's essentially exposing them to situations that are potentially embarrassing or would cause fear and anxiety and kind of getting them used to it in that way. And I didn't really know that that was what CBT was. And I was interested to read more about that. But like you say, it wasn't at all the focus. Of the piece. Well, and I did know that that's what CBT was because I once went through a period of having not just normal productive anxiety, but anxiety that was paralyzing when I had bed bugs 10 years ago. Um, and I like got to a weird place where every time I saw, you know, a speck on the floor or like a mole on my neck, I would I would go into overdrive thinking about all of the terrible bad outcomes. The piece describes how this anxious kid in North Carolina got so paralyzed at the prospect of not getting into college that he just like shut down and stayed home and didn't go to school. And I I didn't encounter symptoms as tough as that. But I did. I just got to a place where uh, I was unable to tamp down the initial worry in the manner that one typically does when one's encountering worries in daily life. And I went to a cognitive behavioral therapist and and did stuff just like um, they describe in this article. And it was total. It was very effective. It was it, it kind of forces you to confront the worst case scenario. And I frankly still do that. Like, you know, but and and of course, I understand why you didn't do that article either, because what's more effective? Obviously, there's plenty of research suggesting that medication can be effective for this stuff. But, um, it, you know, and then also the journalist to me is like, yeah, CBT has been around forever. And lots of articles have been written about how it's an interesting strategy to try for all kinds of mental ailments. 
But that felt like the most fascinating part of the article was watching this kid learn a set of coping skills through this treatment that was more effective than other treatments he tried. Mm -hmm. One other brief thing to note about the article that distinguishes it from some others on the subject is that it does take a detour to discuss how anxiety is experienced by teens uh, who don't have money in uh, less privileged environments. It feels a little bit like a detour in the piece, but props to the piece for thinking about that. I think too often when there are pieces about the ailments of overstressed, privileged teens, um, we don't think as much about how these conditions are experienced or diagnosed in different contexts. Although the specific stories that are told, it should be said, really are all of fairly privileged middle class. That's what I mean in that it feels like a detour. But that's because it's about a treatment option that's probably only available to people who have more dough. Right. I mean, I think the subject is endlessly interesting of how something that clearly has its roots in biological fact, but is also experienced purely subjectively, um, how those two things relate to a cultural moment. And and I just feel as though things turned almost on a point in the last 10 years. Um, and we went from having depression as the sort of more pervasive uh, psychiatric diagnosis to being succeeded by anxiety in that capacity. And um, it's, it's just, it's, fascinating to think about why and what the difference is between anxiety and depression. I wish the article had gone more into that. I mean, depression is is kind of immo- a generalized sense, I think, of immobility or hopelessness. And anxiety is something quite different. I mean, it's sort of dread um, and a kind of objectless dread in a way. And um, the, the article posits tentatively one possible fact is the rise of social media, which I think certainly plays into the way young people experience their own lives uh, and it does not put them at ease socially and um, the capacity to escape social judgment um, I think is uh, has been reduced to virtually nil sort of when you sleep maybe um, uh, and then there's the, the question of parenting styles and helicopter parenting the only thing I would say quickly there is that is that you know I do think there's been a shift which is that is that prior to 2008 there was a meritocratic treadmill which had an obvious endpoint potential endpoint which is work hard uh, as a young person get into good schools get into a good college from a good college into a graduate program into you know, some remunerative career in the global economy. And we've lopped off that for young people and they are all conscious of it. I mean, beyond a certain age, they are absolutely all conscious of it. The labor market, the current state of the labor market after 08 has lopped off the last part. And so you sort of have a treadmill spinning to nowhere. And that does seem to me a recipe for anxiety. It doesn't shock me. I mean, if you don't kind of have this, you know, you know, supposed nirvana. I mean, I think it's a false nirvana to begin with. But if you don't have this nirvana of some kind at the at the end of it, I think the treadmill and the helicopter parenting style. I mean, I do think these things become disconnected from the world and from adult life in in a way that a young person could experience as very very anxious. But uh, I I wasn't a hundred percent convinced that the article got to the heart of the matter. Yeah, I mean, Steve, if the if the author of this article had addressed any of that and sort of placed the the anxiety issue within the larger context of economic anxiety, it, again, would have been a much a, a much bigger and broader piece. And that's that's what I feel like it lacked. It lacked big ideas, and its substitution for big ideas was just to throw some statistics at you and then tell some anecdotes. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, just to, I mean, I don't I hardly need to refine the point any further, but I mean, we are going through a period in American life where essential questions about who we are as a country, who we are as citizens, what we stand for, what our goals are. I mean, a lot of premises are, are, are very shaky right now um, for obvious reasons. We don't need to need to go into them, but it's not, it's just it's completely unclear. I mean, in the face of global warming and the natural disasters that appear to be resulting from it, I mean, you know, how could you not be at some level anxious and that it's it and that it's resolving in a an acute especially acute fashion on young people who are going to be on this earth you know for 50 years longer than the rest of us or 30 or 40 like, years longer than the rest why, of us so there's no mystery to me that this is happening now but why couldn't you make the same argument about the 70s when the america was in decline we lost our position of prominence there was no economic future for anybody the energy crisis suggested a uh, you know inability of resources to meet population growth and we were had the threat of nuclear annihilation hanging over our heads like mm-hmm. to me i right. just i don't buy any theorizing about this because the data is so hard to get that doesn't mean it's not interesting to think about about that set of context, but to me, the underlying question of does that affect the subjective human experience of the world or does it object the way in which uh, our medicalized profession of how we think and talk about and treat the sets of feelings we have in our brains are like so intertwined as to be very difficult to untangle? Like, right. you know, right. is is this is is the um to what degree are a large body of humans having an unprecedented set of feelings or to what degree are they having a constant set of human feelings that we process, understand and describe and treat in yeah, different ways? Like, uh, Right. But that doesn't invalidate what the subjective experience of the feelings are and whether or not they're available to you know, ver- various kinds of therapies, one, one of which might be taking a pill, one of which might be reading Kierkegaard. I mean, look, one difference is in the 1970s, as you point to, there was not a culture of diagnosis and overdiagnosis. There was not a uh, pharmacology, an entire regime of pharmacology built around figuring out what's going on with people's inner lives. There was also a totally different situation vis-a-vis the, you know, the um, hyper meritocracy and parenting styles. The seventies, famously a decade of loose parenting styles. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to me totally outrageous to say. Look, I mean, W. H. Auden wrote a poem called "The Age of Anxiety" in the nineteen fifties, and Kierkegaard wrote a book about anxiety in the in the nineteenth century. No one is saying that there isn't a somewhat, you know, timeless element to some of these diagnoses. You have to begin to think in terms of historical specificity, and you can't undercut that by saying, "Well, why weren't people feeling this in the 1930s, or why weren't they feeling it in the 70s?" I mean, the the point is, people are feeling it, and they're feeling it relative to a specific set of circumstances, and it's probably like fundamental to a therapeutic um, uh, solution to try to understand what those various elements are in relation to one another, right? Yeah. I mean, anxiety is interesting. It's changing. It may be on the rise. This article is not particularly illuminating about it unless you'd like to know more about cognitive behavioral therapy and how it can be productive. That's my that's my verdict. <laughs> Agreed. All right. Yeah. Meyerowitz, yes. We... American Vandal, yes. This particular article on anxiety, no. Yeah. We've given you enough else to do. We've given you like t- five hours of or no, six hours of content to consume. So. All of which will relieve your anxiety. Yeah. So. Don't just don't worry about whether you're anxious. Go watch. Uh, go watch some uh, gumshoes solve a mystery about some dicks. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we got at least a little bit intriguingly catfighty on it, so it wasn't a total waste of time. Anyway, the article is called "Teenage Anxiety." It's in the New York Times Magazine. Check it out. And uh, we're gonna this. I, I sense vociferous social media uh, dis- dissension on this one. So come to Facebook.com 
slash culture fest and then and, and uh, lay it on us all right moving on all right well now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse dane nah what do you have I'm going to endorse um, a food product this week, but it has a little bit of a backstory how I came to discover this food product. So um, the food product is Marie Sharp's hot sauce. It's a product from Belize. It's a very spicy hot sauce that comes in several flavors. And the one I'm endorsing is the, I think the original, the red habanero flavor. It's really spicy, but it it also has flavor. It's in sort of like a carrot-based sauce, and it's kind of vinegary. It's not one of those hot sauces that's just all about macho assault of your taste buds. It actually has flavor and tastes good with everything. How I found out about this hot sauce is because Hillary Clinton mentions it in her book, What Happened, <laughs> in this really fun chapter. I'm listening to her book on audio right now. It's taking me forever to get through it because I have lots of other things to do. But And I'm not endorsing the book because I know she's not everyone's cup of tea. I happen to be really enjoying it. And it's not traumatizing, strangely, to relive the election from the point of view of the person that it was happening to. It actually is kind of helping me to get to deal with the one-year anniversary that's coming up. But there's a really fun chapter in the audiobook read by her in which she talks about the food that they ate during the campaign and things that they fought over on the plane and kind of their favorite snacks and treats at campaign stops. And she talks about how important food becomes when you're living on the road for basically two years. And uh, and one of the things that she mentions, which was, I think, much kind of tweeted and responded to, is that she loves hot sauce and hot foods and, uh, and that this is her favorite hot sauce that all her campaign workers fought over. My daughter, as it happens, is also listening to Hillary's audiobook because it's just around. It's on all of our devices. And so I'll come in the room and hear her listening to it. And her favorite chapter is the chapter about the food because I think she understands it better than the, the political stuff. And she has now also taken to Marie Sharp's As Hot As It Is and loves to imitate Hillary's voice saying, Ninja Squirrel Sri Racha which is another of the spicy sauces that was popular on her campaign plane. So um, Marie Sharp's Hot Sauce, uh, you can find it online, and I'm sure that you can find it in specialty shops or Caribbean food shops and things like that, but uh, I ordered mine online. All right. I love it. Julia, what do you have? My endorsement is a podcast that has quickly become an obsession of mine, and it's a little bit adjacent to the Slate family, and also I love it so much that I told the host so, and then it was featured on an episode that I think will come out at some point. So... Um, this is like a some slight log roll endorsement, but I think it's appropriate for the week in which we discussed American Vandal. The podcast is called These Are Their Stories. It is a law and order podcast. And each episode recaps a, some episode from the Law and Order Corpus. It does Law and Order Original, Law and Order SVU, and Law and Order Criminal Intent, although I will admit that I skipped the Criminal Intent episodes because I don't care about that show. Um, it features Rebecca Lavoy, who's one of the wonderful hosts of our very wonderful parenting podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting, and her husband, Kevin Flynn. Uh, they do it independently through their podcast company, Partners in Crime Media. Uh, and then each week they have on some kind of guest from the world of podcasting or journalism or d detectivery or law. Uh, and there are law and order fanatics to be found in all of those fields, as there are in every field, in part, I think, because of what we talked about with American Vandal, that just... That show is an astonishingly durable whodunit format, and it's a very satisfying watch. Um, the show is fun for a number of reasons. It's very well produced. It has all these fun songs and sound effects within it that are not annoying and give the show structure and shape in ways that are uh, interesting. Uh, it also essentially gives you like the satisfaction of watching a Law & Order show as an audio experience that you can have while walking your dog or doing your dishes. Um, so if you have ever had the thought, 
I love watching TNT reruns of Law & Order when I'm on my couch in front of my TV, but could I have that experience when I'm walking over the Brooklyn Bridge or on the subway? The answer is now, (laughs) yes, you can. Um, And it's just like a funny good hour of podcasting. So the show is These Are Their Stories. Uh, The hosts are Rebecca Lavoie and Kevin Flynn. Strong recommend. Uh, That sounds awesome. All right, my... um endorsement this week is uh probably my favorite living poet uh richard wilbur died um just a couple days ago i was gonna say and uh yeah yeah and um i'm heartened to see how many and diverse outlets and voices are chiming in to say how much uh, he meant to them and how much he meant to american letters um i would love to read a short richard wilbur poem with uh, the indulgence of my co-hosts please oh yeah i love when you read a poem Uh, This is called A Black Birch in Winter. You might not know this old tree by its bark, which once was striate, smooth, and glossy dark. So deep now are the rifts which separate its roughened surface into flake and plate. Fancy might less remind you of a birch than of mosaic columns in a church, like Ara Coeli, or the Lateran, or the trenched features of an aged man. Still do not be too much persuaded by these knotty furrows and these tesserae to think of patterns made from outside in or finished wisdom on a shriveled skin. Old trees are doomed to annual rebirth, new wood, new life, new compass, greater girth. And this is all their wisdom and their art to grow, stretch, crack, and yet not come apart. Rest in peace, Richard Wilbur. He was a great, great poet uh, in a time uniquely suited to not appreciating him. He still found many who really loved his work, and uh, I hope people seek him out. He was one of the greats. Okay. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Stephen. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network, and uh, the Culture Gab Fest is part of that network. You can check out an entire roster of uh, great shows at uh, panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest for Julia Turner and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. We'll, we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.